following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Still in Hebrews 12. Might linger in Hebrews 12 because Hebrews 12 is the big culmination of all of Hebrews. It's been leading up to this. If you've seen Endgame, Hebrews 12 is describing the Endgame. Why Jesus came, what's being offered. In the Old Testament, as they're writing to a Jewish audience, they kind of were under this impression that what was revealed to them in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, was just the end of the story in some ways. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them, it's not. You, you missed it if you thought that's all God had to offer to you. There is more to come, and with the arrival of Jesus, we have been ushered into the end game. So we're going to start reading this morning in verse 18. I'm going to read through, like I've been doing the last several weeks, or maybe even several months, as we're going through, there's going to be more words on the screen than is in your Bible. It's because I'm using different translations and adding a little bit of context from different commentaries and from history, just to help us understand more clearly what the original audience would have understood when they were reading this. You have not come to the place that can be touched, as Israel did at Mount Sinai, to a mountain crowned with blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a windstorm, or to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of a voice, a voice and a message so harsh that people beg not to hear another word. In fact, if you read some of the early Jewish writings, they said that every time God spoke, the Hebrew people ran away for 12 miles. And the angels had to kind of coax them to come back to the mountain. That's not in scripture. That's just kind of their way of explaining how seriously the people took this. They couldn't bear the command that was given. And then there's lots of commands given, but they give just a real simple one. That even if a dumb beast inadvertently touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And some of your translations might say, or shot with a dart, which is very specific. So terrible was the spectacle that even Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. So the concept here is one of boundaries. Where God was, was holy. And unholy people or unholy things dare not touch it. You don't treat it as common. So if even a dumb animal was under penalty of death for treading on holy ground, um, you better be worried if you're a smart human being and you're encroaching onto these holy places. But then the writer goes on to say, uh, you haven't come to that place. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to heavenly messengers unnumbered as opposed to limited angels by whom the law was ushered in, to a joyful feast, to the festive assembly, that's a reference to the games, the images of a stadium full of people, a festive assembly of the firstborn registered as heaven's citizens. So it's not just the Israelite firstborn who get the blessings that come with the promise or the blessings of inheritance. This is now a spiritual thing. You come to God, the righteous judge, and to the spirits of all the righteous or the just who have been perfected. There's debate about whether or not the writer here is referring to the world that is to come and heaven that awaits Or if it's just explaining, there's a new reality that has now come to earth. So we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This could simply be a reference to the church. That now, with Jesus coming and what he offers to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the work that he does in our life, the truth that's been given, all of these things, 
Everything has changed. You now have this new Jerusalem, this new city, this new mountain. All of these images, it says, it is something new. By implication of the following verses, it appears to also be referring to the world to come. I see no reason why it doesn't function on both levels. You have come, not to Moses, but to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant between God and humanity, and to his sprinkled blood rather than the blood of animals that Moses sprinkled. Jesus' blood speaks a greater word than the blood of Abel crying out from the earth. The murder of Jesus, unlike Abel's, which was a homicide that cried out for vengeance, has now become a proclamation of grace. See that you don't turn away from the one who is speaking. For if the people who heard and refused the one who spoke on earth faced punishment, how much more will we suffer if we turn away from the one speaking from heaven? The one whose voice in earlier times shook the earth now makes another promise. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Without getting into the weeds on all the implications of this, just know this is a fuller revelation of God. The Old Testament, God revealed himself in a particular way, but in the person of Jesus now, we see this coming to the climax of the revelation. This is now how God chooses to fully reveal himself to his people. And if the earth shook in the Old Testament when God spoke, everything is shaking now. Because what Jesus has to say uh, impacts more than just the Israelites at the base of one mountain. It has to do with the world and not just the physical world, but the spiritual realities as well. The phrase, yet once more, means that those things that can be shaken will be removed and taken away, namely the first creation. As a result, those things that remain cannot be shaken. So let us be thankful or let us hold on to God's grace because we are part of an unshakable kingdom. We offer to God worship that pleases him and reflects the awe and reverence we have toward him. For he is like a purifying, fierce fire that consumes and destroys everything unholy. Okay, so once again, this is the conclusion toward which all of Hebrews has been building. So when we started this series back in, I don't know, 2015, we were talking over and over about how the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus with all kinds of people or things in the Old Testament that the Jewish people highly revered. And the author says, I don't think you understand, Jesus is better than all of them. Jesus is a fulfillment of what all these things were pointing towards. So Jesus is better than Abraham through whom they got their first covenant with God. Jesus is better than Moses, through whom they got the law. Jesus is better than Melchizedek and Aaron, these high priests that they so value. Jesus is better than that. He's better than Joshua. Joshua is the one that led them into a land of rest, but now Jesus is leading you into a spiritual land of rest. Jesus is better than angels. I mean, they're powerful and amazing, but you have no idea how much more so Jesus is. And now in this passage, you revered this physical mountain. Now there's a spiritual mountain, and we're going to talk about what that means in a little bit. You revered the city of Jerusalem. Now there's a spiritual Jerusalem. You thought this blood was great. You don't understand how great the blood of Jesus is. You thought being a firstborn Israelite male was amazing. I'm here to tell you that now we're all part of the firstborn of the body of Christ. And if you thought your kingdom of Israel was cool, there's now this new kingdom of God that has been ushered in through Jesus. So, same theme. But now the author is just going into detail and 
basically saying over and over, just in case you haven't got it already, Jesus is pretty amazing. He's better than everything that you thought was cool. It all pales in comparison with this full revelation of God to us. So what I want to do this morning is go through some of the language from this passage and some of these comparisons. And at the end, make an application to why I think this matters to us today. So first of all, a comparison between Mount Sinai and the earthly Jerusalem versus Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. So one thing is clear. We're moving from an earthly physical reality to a spiritual reality. Those places where God was present in a particular way or revealed himself in a particular way. Yes, they were important. But now the writer of Hebrews is saying, do you understand? You don't have to go to a mountain to worship Jesus. This isn't about physical places. There's no hot spots where you get God Wi-Fi. It's everywhere. God is present. Now we worship him in spirit and in truth, which is different from worshiping him in a place This is a contrast that Jesus himself makes. A lot of the Old Testament uses physical realities to foreshadow spiritual realities that are come. So, the Israelites move into a land of promise, which is Canaan. We are not Israelites who move into a land of promise like Canaan. We now are part of the family of God, and we move into a spiritual land of promise. They got grapes and milk and honey. We get the fruits of the Spirit. You see this over and over. It was ushering in something greater. And even if the physical reality was cool, it's nothing compared to what actually is coming. So we worship God in spirit. There's no more sacred spaces. Listen, we don't have to travel somewhere where revival is breaking out to experience revival. Like I said, there's not hot spots for God. You can experience it in your home. You can experience God at work. You can experience God driving down the road. And sure, you can experience God in places where something amazing is happening, but you don't have to go there. We don't have to make journeys to a particular spot as something to do in our life. It's cool to visit Jerusalem because it's so loaded with history. But if you don't do it, you're not missing out on something spiritually. God's not more present there than he is here. When you're cooking in your kitchen, when you're cleaning up your garage, God is present. And you can worship him there in spirit. The writer contrasts from the Old Testament the terror at God's presence, the dread the people had, the hiding they did. Really, it's the unapproachable holiness of God. But now he talks about the joy in his presence and that our dread turns to reverence and our hiding actually becomes feasting. And now, not only is God approachable, but God encourages us to approach him. So in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God was very much what we call transcendent. He is greater. Now, God is still transcendent. But Jesus makes clear God is also imminent. He's close In Jesus, he moves into the neighborhood, and he brushes shoulders with us, and he's one of us. He eats and works and drinks and plays. Whatever we do, Jesus did an experience with us, and it's a reminder that God is near. And Jesus is constantly telling people, draw near to me. Draw near to me. You don't need to run away and hide. 
In the Old Covenant, there's a special class of people that get to really experience the presence of God, and that's the priests, and specifically the high priest. And man, to get into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle or the temple, man, you went through all these cleansing rituals because by the time you went behind the veil into the holiest place, you had to be clean. But now, when Jesus died, that veil is gone Now the Bible says we are the temple. We're the living stones that make up the spiritual temple of the church. We're in the Holy of Holies. We don't have to go somewhere now and hope we get clean enough. God invites us in as one of his children. Now, do you realize you have intimate access to God? We pray directly to Jesus as our intercessor. We don't need superstar intercessors. In the Old Testament, you would go to the priest and ask the priest to intercede for you. And it wasn't as if people didn't pray on their own, but that was kind of the process. Uh, Now, Jesus is our intercessor to God. We go to Jesus. And it's cool to go to other people and ask them to pray for you. I think it's a meaningful and important part of church life, actually is to allow people into our lives by asking them to pray with us and to pray for us. But I I can just pray to God. Jesus is my intercessor. Draw near to God, writes James, the brother of Jesus. Next contrast, the people in the Old Testament were in the shadow of God. Or, I'm sorry, They were only allowed to see the shadow of God, and actually that was Moses in particular. So when Moses experiences God on Mount Sinai, depending on how your Bible reads, some of them will say that he only saw God's backside, which sounds a little inappropriate. Some will just say he saw his back. Some say his shadow. Some say the after effects of God. In fact, I think the best understanding of that is that Moses just saw that God had been there like God let him see the after effects of his presence in some fashion. And I don't fully know what that means. But now in the person of Jesus, we get to see God face to face. Jesus said, those who have seen me have seen the Father. Everybody around him saw the face of God in the person of Jesus. Now this is a full revelation. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, they were base dwellers around the mountain. They couldn't touch it. And even their animals could touch it. There's a reason if a steer touched the mountain that you either stoned it or shot it with a dart. Because you couldn't even touch that animal. This was a big deal. And now here we are, and the writer of Hebrews says, uh, not only is that not the case, you're invited up onto the mountain. And if you go into biblical imagery, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, is at the top of the mountain. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh no, come on up. Not just a little bit into the foothills, but now you get to go to the top. There's a city waiting for you there, fully in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, one thing was very clear is that God was pure. They weren't. And as they went through the the rituals of sacrifice... They had the blood of animals that was spilled instead of their own blood to cover for their sins. Now in the old, or in the New Testament, sorry, we still have a God who is holy. And we are still not unless God gives His holiness to us. 
Uh, but now we don't do animal sacrifice anymore. We're not asking for an animal to die in our place. What we have happening is God covering that for us. Which brings me to the next point. And this is the weird one of blood. Because blood can be a weird image for us in the 21st century. The writer contrasts the blood of vengeance or the blood of animals with the blood of grace and the blood of divinity. And he's just making the argument that Jesus' blood is greater. If the ritual use of blood in the Old Testament was powerful, what Jesus has ushered in is something new and far more powerful. So for one, he mentions Abel. Abel's blood was spilled by Cain, and the Bible says it cried out to God, but it cried out for revenge or vengeance. Now we have Jesus. His blood is spilled, but his blood isn't calling out to God for revenge or vengeance. It's calling out to God for grace. You see, in the Old Testament where Moses sprinkles blood, an animal dies for our sins, and now you see Jesus saying, "Uh, no, actually, I will do this for them. And you see my contrast on the left. Moses says, let this animal's blood be spilled in my place to satisfy the cost of my sin. And Jesus says, let my blood be spilled in their place to satisfy the cost of their sin. We see a contrast between the first creation and a second creation. And I'm going to add a couple other things to this category of there's a new world that's happening now. It's no longer where you're God's children because you're from a particular nation. You are God's children now in a spiritual sense. This is open to anybody. No longer is this idea of being part of the group defined by where you were born or what your background is. Everyone is welcome. It's now not a national issue, it's a global issue. So if Genesis is a story of creation, Jesus coming is a story of recreation in some ways. Jesus is a new and better Adam. Instead of Eden, you have uh, Mount Zion and you have the new Jerusalem. It's a replacement story, a recreation story. In fact, Paul writes about there's now a new humanity. He says, we're not classified in the ways that the world has classified people. And at the time Paul wrote this, uh, there was a huge difference between male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Paul goes through all these different things, and he says, oh no, new humanity in Jesus. These distinctions that we used before to determine who had worth, who had value, had dignity, they're gone. They're erased. Jesus has leveled that playing field. We all have value, worth, and dignity. We're not special because of our cultures or because of our gender. We're, we're holy because we're his children. And we are all invited to be his children. The Old Covenant was a shadow, like a lot of the Old Testament was. In fact, there's a lot of language in the New Testament that describes things in the Old Testament as simply shadows of bigger realities. So that's the tabernacle, sacrifices, the law, the priesthood. I think I have a whole list up there. All of these things in the Old Testament are real things, but they're pointing towards something new. It's like the prelude to the march. It's the entrance. It wasn't the end of the story. This was just to prepare you so that when the story shows up in its fullness, you'll recognize what's going on because you've seen parts of it already. It's what C.S. Lewis did with Chronicles of Narnia. 
he recognized that if children read the Chronicles of Narnia and there's Aslan as the Christ figure and there's all these other things going on, he knew if he could just introduce children to this idea that when they heard the real story, they would recognize it for what it was because they'd already seen the shadow of it. This is, in some ways, what we read in the Old Testament. Good things, real things, true things, pointing toward greater things. So, the things in the old are shadows, good shadows, but shadows, they're pointing toward the new. Now we are in this new kingdom, this new covenant, this new city, all of this imagery. Now we're part of it, and it still has two parts. There's a kingdom now. There's a reality about life in Christ that we are made new. We enter into this community of new people. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. But there's also a not yet aspect. And that is in the age to come where there's a new heaven and a new earth. This, even what we have now, is still a little bit of a shadow as it's pointing toward the ultimate fulfillment. And here's a little aside. I think church community is meant to be a foreshadowing of heaven. What I mean by that is, if heaven is a place, well, I'm going to get to this a little bit later. This might be out of order. It's meant to be a foretaste of heaven. If that's for me, tell them I'm busy. As we relate to people here, and I don't just mean on a Sunday morning, but I mean as part of this community. Are we giving people a taste of what eternity has to offer for those who are the children of God? That is love, real love. Do we bring about peace? Are we peacemakers? Are we close-knit? I mean, I can't envision... There's no way that we get to heaven and that we are lonely or that we're outsiders or that we don't feel like we fit in or that there's no place for us. There's no way that happens in the, in the age to come. Okay, we get a chance now in church life to give a glimpse of that. And what I fear is if we don't, church will feel like a taste of something that is to come. And if the taste of church isn't compelling, I wonder if this idea that, oh, is this really a prelude to the next world? Uh, suddenly, that doesn't make the next world look so great. I mean, this, this is a daunting task for us in the church. But I, I believe, and I can't give you one specific verse to proof text this, but I think this is the message of Scripture. We are part of this new kingdom. We are part of this new humanity. We're, we're in the entrance way, so to speak, of the new city, on the new Jerusalem, on the new mountain, all of these types of things. We, we've entered in, but we've got a lot more to go. Back to C.S. Lewis, further up and further in. Man, we get to do that now. We get to give people a taste of heaven. Uh, or we don't. Which brings me to the next contrast, that the shakable world is going to go away and an unshakable kingdom is coming in. So we live in a world of temporary things, right? So much of what's around us is simply going to fade away, and that's places and buildings and cities and 
I have a whole list of things, not just the sinful straw of our lives, but a lot of things that we think are super important are going to fade away. I just redid my deck this spring. Hold your applause. I really like my new deck. Um, it's going to fade away. In fact, it might fall off my house in a year or two. Uh, if I, why would I really invest like emotional energy in my deck? It's just slabs of wood nailed somewhat haphazardly to the side of my house. Right? I, I love this new stage. I love it. It's all going to crumble. All going to crumble. My, the image that came to my mind was that of an Etch-a-Sketch. That in some ways, what we're doing here is Etch-a-Sketch territory with a whole lot of things. I love my truck. My truck is going to break down and I'll have to get another one. Um, I love my feet. But my feet have been breaking down for years. (laughs) By the time a Sunday is done, I go home and my feet just ache because my feet are so bad. Okay, good news is I'm getting new feet someday. But my point is, no matter how much I like them, they're going to fade. Right? So much that we, we gather in life is, is going to end up leaving us. So my question is, what are the unshakable things? And this is just the list that came to my mind. There's a lot more to say about it, and there might even be more things, but God, clearly, the saving power of Jesus' death, the confirming power of Jesus' resurrection, the new heaven and new earth, the cornerstone of the church, which is Jesus, the living stones of the church, which is us, the assembly of the firstborn, which is mentioned in this passage, God's grace, love, hope, all of these things. They're the things that are going to last. I feel like I'm missing a sheet of paper. What's my next slide, Caitlin? Oh, no, okay, I'm back on track now. Just didn't write this in my notes properly. This is my question for today. So this is the practical application. What are the things in my life and what are the things in your life that when this world is shaken in light of eternity, they're going to disappear? So my answer to that is everything that's mortal and temporary is going to disappear. What will carry on in the world to come? That's everything that's permanent and immortal. So what are the immortal things around us right now? There is only one category other than God. It's people. People are immortal. Have you thought about that before? You're surrounded in this room by immortals. Not eternal beings. Only God is eternal. Only God has no beginning. But we have no end. Are you with me? Our existence continues in the world to come. We talk about ourselves as mere mortals. And what we mean by that is that this life will end. That is true. But we are immortal beings. Tracking, or does that make sense? Okay, so if I'm going to invest in this life in things that are that matter through the rest of eternity, is that investment my house? This is an easy one. No. Is this investment my money and things? Is this investment 
my toys, my social media, my, uh, I, I could give a whole lot of things. Listen, if you can touch it and it's not a person, it's going to fade. How foolish would we be to be deeply emotionally invested in those things? In fact, how foolish would we be if we ordered our lives in such a way that those things were prioritized and not the people around us. And here's how I think we invest in the unshakable things around us. So clearly, God is the foundation of unshakable things, right? This is part of our investment into being a child of God. But as I go through my day-to-day life, What can I invest in that will ripple through eternity? That's people. Here's how we do it. Number one, we enter into the unshakable kingdom of God. This is a call to salvation. This means surrendering our lives to the unshakable one who has built an unshakable kingdom for us such that the eternal part of our nature, our souls, is saved and built and refined and turned into the image of Jesus. So, so step one, salvation. But then we also help those in the kingdom to flourish. This is sanctification. Just a fancy word that says, once you surrender your life to following Christ, it's going to do a work in you. going to prune you. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. going to continue to do a work in you that takes this little shack of a place that we bring him. He's going to turn us into a mansion. It's going to take a lot of gutting of this old house, but it's going to be worth it. So we do this, for one, we walk into this as individuals, but then in the church together, we're walking together recognizing everyone's being sanctified, everyone's having old junk torn out, new additions put on. It might be messy at times and noisy and ugly and dirty, but something good's happening and we're all in it together. The other thing is we invite people into this joyful, feasting, festive assembly. And that's evangelism. That we tell others about what this new unshakable king and his kingdom offer us. So now let's get back to things. What can I do with my house to invest in this unshakable kingdom? I can use it to invest in people. So that for me, that includes my own family, for one. But also, my house and my property are investment opportunities, not in a financial sense, but in a spiritual sense. Can my place be a place of peace and of hope and of truth and of fellowship? Where I'm inviting people and my kids are bringing their friends over and all these types of things. Now, it's not that my house is a bad thing because it's temporary. It's that my house is a holy thing. We talked about this last week. It's been set aside for the purposes of the kingdom. Now I can take a temporary fleeting reality and use it to invest in an eternal kingdom. That's also what I can do with my money. That's what I can do with my truck. That's what I can do with my creative skills. If I'm a musician or an artist or I like to write, it's what you can do with your vocation. No matter what your job is, 
It's what we can do with social media. It's what we do with our time. It's what we do with our talents. All of these things, though they will fade, because we are children of God in this unshakable kingdom with this unshakable king, we have been declared holy by God, set apart. And what we have been given now is holy. And we use it for those purposes to invest in that which counts for eternity. Does that make sense? It's not that those things are bad things. I'm not railing on people for having stuff. I like the stuff I have. My deck comes to mind. But honestly, if I sit on my deck all alone, I have gained the deck world Lost my soul. Right Now if I sit on it with my family, that's better. But if I don't at some point sit on it with friends, if it's not a kingdom investment in some ultimate sense, what good is it? It's just a deck that's going to crumble. I think in this passage talks about this worship that pleases God and reflects the awe and reverence we have toward him. I think that's what it looks like. I think that's worship that reflects a reverence and an awe toward God. Like, oh, you gave me this? It's yours. For I'm going to invest it in your kingdom. The passage closed after this great section on... It's a feast. There's this festive thing, just an amazing passage, and it ends with, don't forget, God's a consuming fire, which seems like a downer. But I think the point is simply, do you understand God will burn away all that which is not holy? Just know this, when you come into the presence of God, God will not leave you alone. God will invest in you. And just like, and this is the image, just like when you put gold into fire, you burn away the dross. You burn away all that shouldn't be there. Understand, you give yourself to God. You're in God's presence. He is a consuming fire. He will do a work in you to get out that which is unholy so that what's left is this purified, increasingly kind of Glorious representation of what Christ is doing in us. If I have a challenge for us today out of this, and I do, it's that we look at the things God has given us and we go, okay, I can treat this and honor this on a shakable kingdom level and pretend like that which is going to fade matters more than anything else. Or... I can look at what's been given to me and go, oh, awesome. God takes even these shakable things, and if we move them into the service of his kingdom, uses them to help build unshakable things. Opportunities for us to move closer to God, to help others move closer to God. It's an investment that returns for eternity rather than just makes us happy in a moment. Lord, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for Hebrews as it is really messing with me. And I hope with all of us, uh, as it reminds us what you have called us into, 
what you offer us and just the overwhelming wonderfulness of life in the kingdom. But it's also been this a sobering reminder that we have a responsibility with this. That as your children, uh, you have given us these things to build your family and expand your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, you give us the wisdom on how to do that with what you've given us. Not that we have to try to copy our neighbor or impress anybody else. That's not the point. But honestly, before you, God, what does it look like for us to flourish in this new, unshakable kingdom that you've called us into, but also what does it look like for us to expand this through your power and with your truth to be good stewards of these holy things. And Lord, as always, may we, may we do this for your glory, not so we make a name for ourselves, but so that your name is lifted up. So the glorious nature of what you've offered us is clearly seen. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.